Hello and welcome to Martian Driving Podcast 161. My name is Terry Frost and this time around I'm doing a retrospective on 2019 in genre. So um, let me get the contact details out of the way. I'll tell you why I've been away and we can get the show on the road. Martian Driving Podcast happens every two weeks. It's a podcast of science fiction, fantasy and horror appreciation. Sometimes I have guests in, sometimes I'll have a round table. Sometimes it's just random, particularly when there's a Netflix Marvel Cinematic Universe thing coming up. Feedback is the bread and butter of podcasting, so you can put feedback through at the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. You can also email feedback to feedbackpaleo, P-A-L-E-O, at gmail.com. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com by going to patreon.com slash paleocinema for as little as a dollar a week uh just be aware when you're listening to the podcast there may be some naughty words in it so if there are kids around you might want to listen to it later on okay so how have you been i haven't done this podcast since the 4th of november and i really do apologize for that by the way before i get started that intro music is by a new zealand artist called dialis wayne and she lets you use her music for free it's all remixes if you mention her name so anyway yeah um i've kind of been getting a bit of podcasters block with the podcasts i've been doing the youtube channel and that's been going pretty well but the podcasting has i've kind of had a block about it and i don't quite know why i'll probably talk to my psychologist and see if i can come up with a reason but i've been doing this for what 12 years now and I've been doing it pretty consistently half week every week for that period of time through thick and thin. And I've been mostly doing it by myself. And to be honest with you, uh, I, I talk with Morris from Love That Album podcast. And he seems to be in awe of the fact that I can do a podcast by myself on a regular basis. But it's harder than it seems. And maybe next year what I've got to do is concentrate on getting some guests in, hit the Skype, get that kind of thing going and use that as an impetus to keep things going because I definitely want to keep the podcast going. I enjoy them. I like getting the feedback. I like um, being able to rant at the universe through them. Uh, I've got that to a certain extent with the YouTube, but YouTube is in a sense in a corral. It's controlled by what YouTube lets you do, what YouTube doesn't let you do. Um, it's it's a somewhat different. Of course, you've got the visual aspect of it as well. The visual aspect of YouTube, which for me is kind of amazing, isn't the same as podcasting. And anybody that says it is, is kidding you. The YouTube channel I've been doing weekly, uh, the Terry Talks Movies YouTube channel, and that is challenging in, in a different way, but in a good way. Uh, it takes me a lot longer to do that than it does to do a podcast because of all the editing of the videos and all that kind of stuff. And it occurred to me last week, and I put this up on social media, that what I'm doing essentially, it takes, I do it over two days, essentially, with, and I said essentially twice there, with the YouTube channel. And in two days, I'm putting out a 15-minute documentary about cinema. In two days. That is from most points of view fucking insane but that's the nature of youtube you're putting out 
a documentary. You're writing it, you're going before the camera if you do it that way, or you're doing a voiceover. You're putting the visuals together, you're editing it, you're finding music and putting the music in there as well. You're getting all the levels right. You're balancing the lookup table, the, the way it looks, the color values and the color grading. You're doing all that, then you're putting it up there, then you're writing meta tags for it, then you're putting in a blurb for it, then you're promoting it. Um, it's a job, basically. Uh, it's a job that doesn't pay at this stage for me, but on the other hand, it's a job that requires a lot of attention and a lot of detail. And it helps me maintain my neuroplasticity to an enormous extent. So here's what I can promise you. I will attempt to get the podcast out alternating weekly. Um, I really want to do that. I'm committed to it. I'm committed to the Patreon supporters who give me money for doing it. And I think that it's only fair that I do so. If I close down the Patreon and said to everybody, thank you for your time, but I'm not doing this anymore, that'd be another thing. But I'm definitely not doing that. I'm rolling the YouTube channel into the Patreon as well. I uh, haven't had any nibbles on that yet, but who knows what will happen in the future. Patreon support for YouTube channels is what keeps YouTube going for a lot of the creatives who work on that. Um, yeah, so I've been on a, a year-long year learning curve with YouTube, and maybe that's part of where the energy's gone. But anyway, what this one is about, what this particular podcast, 161, is about is to look over 2019, which has been a bit of a milestone year in genre cinema and in cinema itself uh when scorsese does a four-hour movie on netflix on a streaming service rather than having it purely initially as a cinema release then the world has definitely changed it's a really weird era and to be honest the world has got more science fictional as well uh climate change is really hitting and that's a very skiffy kind of concept uh we got 46 degrees centigrade here yesterday which is about 115 degrees Fahrenheit for those of you stuck in a primitive part of the world. And today it's 20 degrees, which Alexa just told me is 68 degrees Fahrenheit. So we've gone from 115 degrees Fahrenheit to 68 degrees Fahrenheit in 24 hours. That's really weird. And plus you've got the bushfires. My hometown has been covered in bushfire smoke for about two weeks now i've got family there and it really worries me so science fiction is seeping into the world around us so it's no wonder that science fiction movies are the big ones that we see all over cinemas and i'm not going to be spending any time during this podcast dissing star wars i think that other people have been doing such a wonderful job of that as it's superfluous for me to do so and i take no pride in that i want every movie series and every kind of movie to be the best it can possibly be i think it's churlish and i have been churlish in the past it's churlish to want movies not to be any good or something like that but uh, i want them to be good unfortunately in speaking in a broader context many of them aren't and that's kind of sad because people spend so much money and so much effort and so much creativity on making a film it's getting to the stage of my life where I get sad that they're not better than they are. And that's a kind of weird headspace. But I don't think it's necessarily a bad one. Uh, as I get older, I'm getting more utopian in a lot of things. I think that utopia is achievable in politics and society and even in cinema. So maybe it's a little bit um, optimistic of me, but I think things can be better than they are and we should really encourage it when a movie or a franchise or 
a political party or an individual politician or just a public figure heads in the direction of utopia. It's not a bad little place to calibrate your moral compass to, even in movies. I've just looked at my letterbox and I've probably missed a few, but I've watched at least 246 movies in 2019. And I know I've watched seasons and seasons of television series as well. I've binged things to a ridiculous degree because obviously I have more spare time than people who are in full-time work. And for the most part, I've enjoyed myself with it. It's, it's been a lot of fun. I've tried to expand my horizons and, and move outside my comfort zone with a lot of things. And it's never less than rewarding. Sometimes it's frustrating because I don't quite understand a nuance of Chinese cinema or something like that. But there are resources that can help you with that kind of thing. But, uh, yeah, I've really gone out of my way to make sure that I try new things. So let's start out with cinema. Cinema in 2019 has been bookended by the two big blockbusters, Rise of Skywalker at the rear end and Avengers Endgame at the front end, both of which are going to make more money than you could count in 100 lifetimes. Both run by the great big mouse machine. But I think that there's a kind of brand differentiation there. Marvel does things differently than uh, Lucasfilm, which does different things than mainstream Disney. Now, whether that's going to converge because Kevin Feige, who runs the MCU, is also taking over a lot of the kind of creative aspects of Star Wars, and we're not sure where that's going to go. Uh, I hope it doesn't mean that we're going to kind of get a watered-down version of the MCU because that's the franchise of the two, of course, that I'm more invested in. But I think there's some interesting creative things coming up with the MCU, whether it's going to be as groundbreaking and as all-encompassing as it has been over the past decade or not remains to be seen. But I'm kind of invested in a few things, like the Eternals I'm, I'm looking forward to. I'm also looking forward to Shang-Chi, which I see as a good move in the direction of multiculturalism in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Now, that's kind of a mixed blessing in a sense, because, yes, people, uh, particularly Asian people, want to see representation of themselves, particularly in blockbuster cinema. I totally respect that. But the other side of that, of course, is that Marvel and the big machine behind Marvel are doing that to make money and, in a sense, monetizing ethnicity. But I think that that's okay as long as it's done respectfully and done in a way that entertains people. I think that if it's a totally cynical marketing exercise and we here in Australia know what it's like when you have somebody who's got a background in marketing in charge of things, it becomes um, all spin and bullshit. But, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of optimistic and I, I want to see that representation. I know there are a number of fans of colour who um, are looking forward to, say, Black Panther 2, which indeed I am as well and Shang-Chi and anything else that brings that diversity. I mean, it's got to be balanced kind of well as well. I think that you can have people of different ethnic backgrounds in a whole bunch of um, superhero films, but if you don't also bring their culture to that particular franchise or that particular intellectual property, 
it's going to end badly. I think it's dishonest if you don't do that. One of the things that was done right by the Netflix MCU things is that Luke Cage in particular was grounded in black urban American culture. And it was so deeply woven into not only the characters, but the plots, the settings, the storylines, the whole lot. It was just so integral there that I think it's a really important piece of cultural and pop cultural history to have something like that. In the same way the Black Panther is to an extent. But for me, from my aging white guy point of view, I think that Luke Cage did it more seamlessly and more integral in a more integral way than Black Panther did. Fantasy Cinema's got a pretty good run too. Well, not Fantasy Cinema necessarily, but Fantasy Television. Um, a show like The Good Place, which is at its very essence fantasy and also talks about concepts of morality and philosophy and worldview and all sorts of other things, really does punch well above its weight. Um, I'm really impressed with The Good Place because I think that it's in bite-sized chunks the episodes run about half an hour or so it's a comedy format they they really do talk to the guts of a lot of the dilemmas that face us philosophically in modern particularly western society and they make you laugh and cry as well it's uh it's a very very um complex dance that they do and they do it very well. The ensemble works, the writing works, the set design, the production design, the world building. They're all seamless and they're all really interestingly done. And the lovely thing is that nothing there is ever dumbed down. And you've got to respect that, particularly with a series, of course, that wants views and yet is not willing to compromise the smarts that it has in order to get them and so i've got a lot of time for the good place i think that if you haven't watched it terrific you're in for a beautiful ride when you do there's also quirky small shows out there that were a lot of fun this year there's the what we do in the shadows tv series with the vampires they moved it from new zealand to staten island but it didn't really suffer because of that again nice writing nice ensemble and a bit of fun there's a small series that came out of New Zealand and Hi to All My People over in Aotearoa, um, which was Wellington Paranormal, which is a kind of documentary, a mockumentary about a couple of cops who handled the paranormal aspects of living in the capital of New Zealand, Wellington. They do some interesting things. They have to deal with alien invasion. They have to do with ghosts. They have to do with... Tarifa, which is a um, Maori sea monster, a whole bunch of different things. And it's done really interestingly with these two pretty clueless cops wandering around and yet somehow um, making all the problems go away. Uh, they've, they've dealt with vampires, they've dealt with werewolves, all sorts of things. Two seasons of it so far. They even had the New Zealand Prime Minister's fiance do a guest role as himself in the series. Uh, it's streaming at the moment on SBS On Demand if you're here in Australia. I'm not sure you may want to do a VPN and get a hold of it that way if you live elsewhere. But, um, yeah, it's a lot of fun, and genre making fun of itself really works. And one of the things that I did watch 
um, uh, for the first time and binge this year was the Orville because it's the only decent uh, Star Trek series that's happening at the moment that doesn't just run eight episodes. And, of course, you've got Star Trek Disco, which did that, and Star Trek Disco, the, the season that we got this year, was really great, but I wanted to see more of it. I think that it's taken Star Trek in a different direction, and given that the movie franchise seems to have stuttered, if not entirely halted, I think that between the kind of pseudo-Star Trek you get with the Orville, which does have some pretty grim episodes and some good drama as well as the comedy in it, you've got those little short seasons of Star Trek Discovery coming out from CBS Online, which do at least give you um, an expansion of the Star Trek universe and and kind of elaboration on the world building of the Star Trek universe really worked for me. I think that uh, making Star Trek grittier but staying with its utopian ideals of the Federation is a hard balancing act, but I think that uh, Star Trek Disco has done that fairly well. Uh, There are other small series that came out as well that really did give us some uh, meat to chew on. There was, of course, Years and Years, the English Russell T. Davies series about the near future in the UK, which started about next Tuesday and went on for about a dozen years after that. Again, it's a short season, but the writing is great. The extrapolation on current trends politically, socially, technologically and morally was really on point. Emma Thompson was great as Vivian Rook, the big bad who wasn't really the big bad because there were grey eminences behind her regime in England. Uh, She was like a female Boris Johnson mixed with Margaret Thatcher and all sorts of other demagogues there. Um, The kind of graininess of taking the story in that series down to the level of a single family and what occurs to them during that time isn't a new concept. Um, it goes back at least as far as Noel Coward's Peace in Our Time, which is a play about uh, the Germans winning World War II, which was written during World War II. Using his was an important bit of um, television during the year. It really got a wide viewing. It was on SBS here. Uh, our public broadcasters tend to show a lot better product than other terrestrial um, television networks and uh, SBS did a really good job of getting that one through and promoting it through their own platform because there wasn't a lot of other opportunity. Uh, the public broadcasters here in Australia are being squeezed by our nasty conservative government and their budgets are getting slashed, including the ABC for whom I do my weekly radio gig, uh, which is continuing by the way. I'm going to be doing it for the 11th year running which is kind of cool. Um, I'm actually doing a Christmas and New Year episode about my top Christmas movies and my top New Year movies. Uh, Two days from now, (laughs) they sprang it on me and said at the end of the year, can you come into the studio and record something for us? And because I'm a softie, I said yes. But I'm doing it next year with Rebecca McLaren where we're just going to talk about movies, sometimes deeply, sometimes not too deeply. But uh, that is an ongoing terror for the radio listening public but uh yeah the the, just the series that came out and the fact that um science fiction and fantasy have been so inclusive um this year and and kind of so integral into mainstream society i'm not used to that 
when I grew up as a, a science fiction geek, it was very much a fringe activity, kind of like train spotting or writing down car number plates. But, um, yeah, it, it's kind of weird to have everybody else suddenly on this incredibly expanded bandwagon. Uh, one of the other things I enjoyed this year was Watchmen, first season of that, six episodes. It really does work. Um, Damon Lindoff, which he, a lot of people gave me shit for doing Lost and jumping the shark on that series. But Watchmen, that tight six or seven series... Uh, so nine episode series, I think. Well, nine episodes, yeah. Really works. It took the Watchmen universe into 2019, but keeping a track of the history as well. History going back more than 100 years. It dealt with a whole bunch of aspects of American history that tend to get brushed under the carpet. It talks about race. It talks about privilege. It talks about um, power and how it's wielded by those who have it in society it does a great job the ensemble works really well regina king was fantastic in in there um tim blake nelson uh luke gossett jr shows up in there as well um it's it's just one of those series that when it does hopefully come out on disc i definitely want a copy of it because i think it's worth keeping and i know that things that appear on streaming platforms are ephemeral and will blow away on the wind one day and you won't be able to watch them again so i'm still trying to be a bastion of physical media wherever possible because i think that that ephemerality of streaming services while it does give us access to a lot of things very quickly it's still a little bit of a, a dodgy thing there to um rely solely on that and the other thing about that, which is the, I think the biggest bugbear I have with streaming services, is that the moment you stop paying, your total access is cut off. Anything that you've um, had previously or watched previously, you can't watch again unless you keep paying them. Uh, it's like renting a house. You never pay it off. But you know that going into it, but still it kind of does irk me a little bit, whereas... If I pay 30 or 40 bucks to buy a season of a TV series and put it away on the shelf, I've got that for 20 or 30 years at least, and that's going to see me out. We've got other series as well, which maybe didn't do as well. Uh, on Amazon Prime, we got Carnival Row, which I didn't mind. Um, I kind of enjoyed the world building, the fantasy world where fairies and other mystical creatures coexist with human beings, and it's set in a kind of steampunky um, 19th century sort of milieu. I think it kind of worked. I think that it's good to see that kind of stuff. And I think there's room at the table for those kind of urban fantasy series to exist. And hopefully the second season will kind of improve and elaborate on that. I know there are a few good things coming up. I know that there's probably going to be a wildcard series based on the um, anthology series George R.R. R. Martin started with a whole bunch of other writers about 25, 30 years ago. There's also possibly going to be a Sandman Slim series based on Richard Cadry's novels, which should be a lot of fun if it gets off the ground and is done correctly. Um, yeah, so the future is bright for the genre, particularly on television and streaming. I think that there's so much money there now that people are willing to take a... Well, the bureaucracies within those organisations are willing to take a punt on uh, an intellectual property or a, a new concept, a new idea, 
creativity is is probably more alive in streaming old school kind of for what of a better word television than it is in cinema to a certain extent i think that uh cinema is for tentpole movies and kids movies these days and there's nothing you can no use complaining about that no use whinging about it i mean if i had my way we'd go back to having double features you have one really top film at the second half of the cinema viewing and then you have maybe a b picture at the start and popcorn would be a lot cheaper but i think that um yeah the, the world's changing with the way we consume media uh, it's really interesting to look at the stats just to kind of get back to me for a little bit because I'm an egotist of nothing else and just to see which platforms people are viewing my content online. Um, some people are reading it on phone screens. Some people are doing it on smart TVs. It's um, interesting to think of somebody sitting on a train somewhere in the world watching one of my videos uh, it's on the um, phone screen. It's a weird concept, whereas there'll also be people sitting in front of a 78-inch um, Ultra HD screen and watching it as well. So I've got to kind of cater to both of those uh, experiences in what I do. But um, I think one of the reasons why things have got... To, just to get back away from me for again, I think one of the reasons why things have become so popular uh, as far as genre and binging series and things like that is the fact that um, screens are ubiquitous now i think that that's maybe more than the streaming services themselves the thing that's really um changed the way media is in the second and, and heading up to the third decade of the 21st century so just for a few minutes i'm going to take a break from the speculations and the reflections on 2019 in cinema and let you know what I've been watching, because I forgot to do that at the front end of the show. Uh, I'll just bring up my letterboxed and just check out what I've watched since last time. Uh, because I've got Disney Plus now, which I paid for a year in advance to make it cheaper, so I wasn't giving them quite as much money as I would have been otherwise, I saw a couple of movies from, I think, the 70s. Yeah, they have to be the 70s, which Disney did, Disney did for kids. Uh, they're a movie and its sequel, Escape to Witch Mountain and Return from Witch Mountain, which uh, was about a couple of kids who are basically aliens living on Earth, being chased by nasty people and kind of being helped by other kids and other people in order to escape things. Now, this... I didn't enjoy them. I've got to be honest with you. I didn't enjoy them. They got some great actors in it. Um, you got some some really fine actors. Uh, Ray Milland was in the first one. You've got the weird team up of Christopher Lee and Betty Davis in Return from Witch Mountain. Uh, you get Eddie Albert showing up as a helpful person as well. It's um, really odd, and it kind of gives me. I've got thoughts about Disney and one of the reasons why I don't like Disney uh, going from my childhood on to now I think one of the things with Disney is um, I'm leaving aside things like the MCU and the Lucasfilm universes Disney's kind of raison d'etre and Disney's worldview and Disney's zeitgeist is a kind of middle American worldview 
which is very much grounded in the early part of the 20th century. Children have to be treated certain ways. Children have to be shielded from certain things. And the content provided to children has to be dumbed down. I think that Escape to Witch Mountain and Return from Witch Mountain, even though a certain number of people are going to have a nostalgia for that, are reflections of that protect the children from anything approaching reality worldview. And I've got an issue with that. Um, I'll tell you. What, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you what the cause of it is. Then I've talked about this on the other podcast, but not entirely. I've kind of talked around it. There's a Disney movie that came out in the fifties. Uh, sorry, sixties, called "Follow Me, Boys," with Fred McMurray playing a guy in this 1920s town, and he finds the kids are just running wild in the town, so he decides to become a scout master and leads them on the ways to righteousness over the years. Now, one of the characters, played by young Kurt Russell, this movie's from 1966, has an alcoholic father who conveniently dies and he's adopted by the Fred McMurray character and things like that. I saw this movie, maybe 67, 68, um, at the, the Regal Cinema in Liverpool, which is my go-to cinema when I was a kid. And even at that age, it upset me enormously because... The drunken father is given a soft um, cell, in a sense. He's seen as a, a kind of sad character and a um, pathetic character. And and that wasn't my experience of drunken fathers. My father was brutal. I didn't believe that a drunken father would just be kind of you know, falling asleep and, and not being nasty to his kids. There was emotional dishonesty about the film. That put me off Disney movies for a long time after that, and probably to a certain extent till now, where it's kind of, even though, this is, yeah, this is a family film, uh, so you can't go too dark with it, but I think that the emotional dishonesty of the character and, and of that particular subplot of the movie really pissed me off. I think that even at that age, when you've got lived experience of something, you got a very good knows for something when it's phony and that phoniness of that particular Disney movie then made me analyze a little bit even though I was a kid analyze other Disney movies I saw and there was kind of always that little doubt about you know I was being sold a piece of bullshit there was always that kind of sense in me about that and I think that that is one of the great flaws of the Disney machine is that it tends to steer into emotional dishonesty with a lot of its product and it dumbs down things with the assumption that kids can't understand nuance. But just to get away from that a bit, I watched um, the Witch Mountain movies. Uh, let me have a look here, bring up the um, letterbox again because I closed it down to do my research on Follow Me Boys which I don't recommend you watch. I've watched about half of it uh, about two months ago. And to be honest with you, never went back to the second half because, well, I suppose it was exactly the sort of movie I thought it was. Um, even though I was trying to look at it with a, a slightly more grown-up and unfiltered eye. Uh, let's see, what else did I watch? I watched Supergirl, the Supergirl movie from back in the 80s with Helen Slater and Peter O'Toole and Faye Dunaway and Brenda Vaccaro. It's very 80s. It is crazily 80s. Um, 
I can see why it wasn't successful because I think that the plot lines and things didn't have the same urgency that maybe Superman had and we'd already seen that a person can fly and even though Helen Slater who was a fairly new actor at the time is charming and interesting as um, Supergirl I think that it's kind of a, a weird little piece of cinema and to be honest with you it hasn't aged particularly well but it's amusing to kind of go back and at least try to watch these old things and see whether they're any good. Uh, I watched Six Underground, the um, Michael Bay movie starring Ryan Reynolds, which is a pure popcorn action movie. It came up on Netflix. Uh, it had a fairly big budget. I think it's about $200 million budget or maybe 150 Um A whole bunch of people with um, the support of a billionaire decide to make the world a better place by taking down a dictator in the kind of southwest asian region and um yeah it's got some really nice action sequences really beautiful stunt work uh some of it's done cg some of it's done on the streets of cities like florence in italy and hong kong and and other places like that so it's got that international viewpoint it looks like it's setting up a movie series because it's definitely open for a sequel and I went into it knowing that it was going to be a popcorn film and uh, a pure action film with not terrible much nuance. And it was, but on the other hand, I enjoyed it. It really was a more enjoyable Michael Bay movie than any of those ones where basically you end up um, watching a couple of robots, giant robots, punch each other. Those kind of films I didn't enjoy, but... Uh, yeah, it was it was fun to watch, and uh, it was no, yeah, you know, it gave value without being on anyone's list of the best movies of the year. I then got a, a, when I was in Sydney about a year ago, picked up a bunch of Blu-rays for five dollars from a second-hand store, and among them was The Getaway, Sam Peckinpah's movie with Steve McQueen, Ali McGraw, based on a Jim Thompson novel. It's good. It still holds up really well. Uh, it, you know, it's basically um, Stephen Queen plays Doc McCoy, a guy who gets out of prison and uh, gets out of prison because of a corrupt businessman, does a bank heist for that businessman, and he and his wife, played by Ali McGraw, get, try to get away to Mexico. It's pretty simple in the through line, but the nuance of the movie is the relationship between Doc and his wife. And the tension of him being in jail for four weeks and how that plays out. Steve McQueen and Ali McGraw fell in love with making this movie and were married for a few years. And that chemistry really bubbles and works, even though Ali McGraw was never a great actor. The chemistry really works. And there's that kind of tough guy romanticism that you saw in a few other Peck and Par movies, things like The Ballad of Cable Hogue, and to a certain extent, even things like The Killer Elite. And um, most of all, probably in Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. But The Getaway is a movie that, that's 1972, I think, I'm fairly sure. And it holds up well today. It works as an action film. It works as a narrative about people. And it's, um, yeah, it's solid. I'm surprised at how well and entertaining it was. It helped the fact that my internet was out when I watched it. And I put the disc in because the internet was out a bit during the um, heat wave. 
there was a power outage where the um, local servers were. But, um, yeah, I really enjoyed that. I'm going to have to put that away in a private place because it was one of my best rewatches for this year. I'd seen it, I think, in the cinema originally way back when, but the getaway worked. Not much else I want to talk about on that point of view, uh, what I've been watching in the movie things. The other thing I watched, and getting back into genre stuff, of course, season four of The Expanse which Amazon took over when the previous owners didn't want to make any more series of it. And uh, I binged the whole series. I think it was 10 episodes and enjoyed it. The ensemble's back there. Um, They've gone through the wormhole into that um, kind of pocket universe, which leads to a whole bunch of different places in our galaxy. They go and investigate some problems with a colony on one of those planets which has only just been colonised by a whole bunch of people from the belt. And it, um, it really works. They kind of bounce between three different locations, mostly. You've got Earth, where uh, Christian Avasarala, played by Shreya Dashlu, has political problems on Earth with her own career. You've got um, Bobby, the female uh, Martian soldier on Mars, trying to deal with a life where Mars has become irrelevant because a whole bunch of planets you don't have to terraform have suddenly become available. And you've got the crew of the Rossinanti on the alien planet, Ilias, I think it's called, and dealing with some alien artifacts there and some extreme conditions as well as a corporate military force that have come down to essentially take the planet off the colonists. It uh, works really well. The plot bounce well between the different locations. It's definitely steering closer to the original novels than a lot of previous seasons were, and that does it great benefit because the plot is already there. Uh, season 5 should be coming up in a year's time. I know some of the things that are going to be happening in Season 5 because I have read ahead on the books, and it's going to be great. And this is the kind of science fiction I want to see. You like the characters... You like the worlds involved in it. Um, you like the politics and the plots and the design of things. Uh, going back from season one, the production design has improved enormously. The special effects are fantastic. They use physics really well and without fudging the um, physics of a spaceship turning around halfway between two places and needing to decelerate the second half the problems of gravity and food and water and resources and um, just all of those things that would be a part of any kind of space colonization process are extremely well um, based in this series and uh, I like that I think that it's smart science fiction it's science fiction where you care about the people involved and it's a nice saga as well it really does work crazily well without making it into a universe in the future where all of our problems are solved we just have different problems and on much larger scales in the expanse and i really do appreciate that i think that it's science fiction for grown-ups which can't be said for every single intellectual property out there at the moment which brings me to the mandalorian which i've watched seven episodes of so far because that's all they've released and I think that it's kind of dishonest. I can understand that if people are engaged with the franchise that it, of which it's a part, 
they'll go with it and people love the cute baby Yoda in it. But these episodes are not really good. If you strip away the fact that it's a Star Wars series, it's kind of an odd bird. You don't ever see the protagonist's face because the Mandalorian wears a mask all the time, wears that helmet, which is made out of magic metal that doesn't get penetrated by anything. Um, and Pedro Pascal, who is playing the Mandalorian, is basically the voice actor. Somebody else does the body work, which, again, makes it a really weird thing. It's um, It's got some weird casting as well. Not bad, but weird. Uh, Werner Herzog plays one of the baddies in there. Uh, Jenny Carano's in there. She's kind of okay with it. But my biggest problem is that it borrows so much, particularly Japanese Jidaideki movies like um, the Lone Wolf and Cub series, um, Spaghetti Westerns, which, of course, borrowed from Samurai series as well. It's, um, yeah, it really is a cynical exercise from, for me because they've got a built-in audience. They know they're going to get eyes on the screen, whatever they put there. So what they've got to do is put enough little kind of fan servicey things in there that you don't mind that the main character is a void and that you're not seeing anything particularly new in this universe and that it doesn't have nuance. There's a scene at the start of um, episode seven where Carl Weathers playing one of the other bounty hunters sends a little hologram message to the Mandalorian. The dialogue in that is crazily bad. It is eye-wateringly fucking lame. It's it's there to give us a whole bunch of kind of uh, info dump on the plot. But it is written like it's written by a 14-year-old for whom English is his fifth language. It's that level of bad. And, yeah, I just thought all you need to do is get somebody who's good at writing dialogue, get them to run past, you know, past that one through them, and they'll be able to pick that up. But they don't care enough to do that. Uh, John Favreau has written the scripts for all of the series so far, uh, with one or two exceptions, I think. But in general, the dialogue in this is just is at best serviceable. At worst, it hurts your ears. And um, I think that it does show us that Disney is unashamedly using this cash cow without giving full value back. I don't mind you know, a franchise being rebooted in a different format, but like Star Trek was with Star Trek Disco, surprise us, delight us, expand the universe, give us characters who are different and characters who aren't necessarily the unashamed and unscarred utopians that we had in the original series. Um, this series really does jump the shark in the first episode. And even though I did want it to be good, I wanted to get something from Star Trek that wasn't going to be fucking what the fuck. But um, The Mandalorian's not that. It's uh, I don't mind a small-scale series at all, but I think that it doesn't show us anything new, and it's got nothing besides parody and fan service. I did say on social media that it was a toy ad with flute music. It's a little bit more than that, but not much more. So a little disappointed that it will be interesting to see the uh, Disney Plus stuff that comes up in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and whether that retains the cynical low value 
approach that the Mandalorian takes to its IP. I hope not. I hope that the uh, series we get from Disney Plus in the MCU, One Division, and the others are what if and all those kind of things do give us good value. But that remains to be seen. I've got no faith in Disney's abilities to do things right, apart from making a shit ton of money. And while we're speaking about potentially dangerous empires, uh, China has been doing some science fiction this year. I did see The Wandering Earth in the cinemas back and round Chinese New Year in Sydney. And yeah, it's, it's rock solid science fiction. It comes from a very different cultural viewpoint than our own. I've talked about it in the podcast. But there's going to be more of this kind of stuff. There are going to be more movies coming out of China to spread China's view of the world to a wider audience and also to kind of remind the Chinese diaspora that China's there, I suppose. The other Chinese science fiction movie I saw, Shanghai Fortress, wasn't as good. It was um, a, a kind of sweet romance combined with a remake of Independence Day. Not so good, but um, there is some good written science fiction coming out of China through translation, and uh, Ken Liu is doing some of those translations, and that has brought us to our well, brought to our attention the works of people like Liu Cixin. Um, yeah, the, we're going to hear more from China in the science fiction realm, and also Europe because there are some. Netflix series of science fiction coming out of Europe, uh, non-English speaking parts of Europe, not just that little island, you know, a little group of islands off the top left-hand corner. And so we're going to be seeing more of that stuff as streaming services are looking for content and are willing to pay at least a little bit for um, dubbing services and subtitling and things like that. So, we, you know, I'm, I'm just amazed this year at how rich we are in potential content to watch. It's unprecedented in my lifetime, and I doubt if it was any good before that. Um, yeah, we, we've just got so many different things we can watch. You can't watch everything. You would have to have a commode and amphetamines to be able to sit down and watch all of the stuff that's available to us in science fiction and fantasy in a you know, audiovisual format. So what do I have for 2020? Um, I want to see the, the MCU movies that are coming out in 2020. Of course, I will be there to see them. I want to see some something coming out of left field. I want to see something from Outliers, which really works. Uh, the We got a little bit of a couple of years ago with Clever Man, the Australian TV series, which gave an Indigenous Australian viewpoint on... Um, superheroes and i want to see more of that kind of stuff i want to see other people's stories being told that's probably my big takeaway from this year in my media consumption i want to hear how other people see the world i want to see how other people see the world i want them to tell us their stories if they choose to share them in ways that we haven't seen before because i know the white guy narrative i know the hero's journey and all that kind of shit but I want to see something that I haven't seen before. I want to be able to kind of put my head in a space that's not my own much, much more than we have in the past. And I think that as we've got this constant acceleration of how stories are told through video um, in all of its forms, I think that we're going to start seeing a lot more movies in particular and and other media which do give us a more immersive experience it doesn't just have to be um, a VR kind of thing but I think the ability to tell stories 
in a kind of movie format is changing and evolving. And I think that that's kind of cool. And from the other side of things, I want to see audiences becoming more sophisticated. I think that we, you know, there, there are things we watch for comfort and everybody's got them. Mine aren't the same as yours. Yours aren't the same as the person sitting next to you. Um, I want to see audiences reaching out for more interesting things. Yeah, a lot of people see um, watching movies and, and watching TV shows as a form of relaxation, and that's fine. There's, but there's nothing to say that while you're relaxing, you can't exercise your mind, you can't have it engaged. And I think that um, movies and TV series that don't at least offer us, say, subplots and a couple of different levels or some metaphors for something else or, or whatever it is, um, I think that they're going to become more marginalised in the future. I think that um, one of the things that um, broadcast terrestrial television is showing us is that if you dumb down your content, you're going to lose audience. And I think that may well be demonstrated by a lot of the fan commentary I've heard about um, Rise of Skywalker. Now, as I said, I'm not going to dismiss it. I'm not going to give it shit or anything like that. But I'm a little bit surprised at how nuanced and disappointed a lot of the um, narrative is from the fans of that particular franchise. And I can only see that as a good thing, not because they're dissing Star Wars, but because audiences are becoming more sophisticated and they're demanding more sophisticated entertainments. And that's a good thing. I think that if you want a simplistic, unnuanced narrative about good versus evil, in your entertainment, then you probably need to be watching sport rather than fiction. Or, well, sport and some sports are fiction, but just in general terms, sport is a place where you get goodies versus baddies these days. If you try to do it in movies to in an unvarnished way, then you're going to eventually lose people who have grown up with sophisticated um, TV and cinema. Because even things, even kids shows these days like Steven Universe and Rick and Morty and all sorts of things like that, they are sophisticated in their own way. And the sneaky thing they're doing is they're educating children to expect more from their entertainment. And that can only be good. It may well piss off a few people. Fair enough. Everything pisses off some people. But I think that... Um, Sophisticated narratives are what I'm looking for in the future. I've reached outside my comfort zone outside of genre watching as well. And just like with my genre watching that uh, where I stepped outside my comfort zone, it was rewarding. And in all things, innovation doesn't come from the center. It comes from the edges. So what I'm doing a little bit is I'm looking for the outliers. I'm looking for the little strange stuff on the side like um, fast color. If you didn't see Fast Color this year, you missed out. You really should check that out. And another movie called Little Joe, which people should see. Um, Innovative and interesting genre works are at the edges, and they always have been. Uh, Yeah, people, a lot of people looked at Heinlein and Asimov and people like that. But the really interesting stuff was being done by Alfred Bester and Ursula Le Guin and all the people around the edges and Harlan Ellison. It's like pizza. The really good stuff's not right in the middle. It's around the edges towards the crust. But it's been a pretty good year. Just to kind of wrap things up, it's been a pretty good year in genre in 2019. There have been a ton of things 
that were interesting. Yes, you have to dig it out sometimes, but people like me and the two or three million other people out there are trying to steer you in the direction of the good stuff. Uh, it's yeah, it's a good time to be a fan of pretty much anything, except you know maybe fascism. Although you could argue, I suppose, that they're on a pretty good run at the moment, given the, the election results in three of the major countries that speak the same language I do. But I don't think long term they're going to survive. I think that um, change. I'm I'm kind of getting really comfortable with change. I'm getting apart from the climate. I'm comfortable with social changes. I'm comfortable with changes that people see in gender roles. I'm comfortable with changes in who gets a seat at the table. I'm kind of good with that because I learn. And I think that um, that diversity is maybe the thing that's going to save us. It, It may well be that push to have everybody have their viewpoints shown and I don't include people with really conservative viewpoints and who are locked into mid 20 early 20th century memes we're hearing stories from all sorts of people who didn't get a voice before and that's really exciting for me Um, I'm going to read Bruce Pascoe's Dark Emu before the new year which is about indigenous agricultural practices in Australia which were totally ignored when white settlement came in Uh, Yeah, it's a good time. It really is to be open to things. It's a really bad time to be close to things because eventually you won't prevail. But um, I kind of like the fact that as I get older, the universe gives me more ways to learn things. It gives me the internet. It gives me Twitter. It gives me Facebook. I'm trying not to stay in the echo chambers in those things. And I'm listening to the other side of various arguments. But for me, who's self-educated, just having access to finding out who that little actor was in a particular movie I'm watching, who I thought did a really good job, and then following their career in different ways, for instance, or some writer of an episode in a TV series, I can quickly and easily, with the touch of my thumb, find out the other work that person's done. Ah, yeah, for learning things, we live in the best time in human history. What we've got to do is learn to learn better. Anyway, on that note of fragile optimism, I'm going to leave you this time. I'll play a bit of music after the credits, which honour the Patreon supporters of this podcast and Paleo Cinema and the YouTube channel Terry Talks Movies. Um, Look after yourselves. I hope you have a great holiday break. Whatever you're doing, stay cool if you're down here. Stay out of the fucking fires if you're anywhere north of me here in Australia. Um, Stay warm if you're up north. And I hope that you get to spend the time with people who care about you and about whom you care. And I'll catch you guys next week with the Paleo Cinema Podcast. And two weeks from now, I promise, with a Martian drive-in. Take care and... I am going to now play the credits and follow it up with a piece of suitable music. Catch you later. Here are the credits for Paleo Cinema Podcast and Martian Drive-In Podcast. Done in the style of movie credits to honour the people who support this podcast. Thank you to Tom, the focus puller. Sarah, the special effects technician. Ian, the caterer. Grant, the technicolor consultant. Claire, the script doctor. Gary, the prop master. Morris, the musical director, 
Jan the dialect coach, Arm and our key grip, Matt the rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine our scientific advisor, Julia our casting director, Chris our camera operator, Christopher our gaffer, Miss Jane our wardrobe mistress, Tansy our foley artist, Alyssa our location scout, Mark our second unit director, Paul our special makeup effects director, Tammy the donut wrangler, Tim our New York unit director, Rabbi Steve our spiritual advisor, uh, Steve Sullivan our director of monster effects, Dylan our goat wrangler, Eric our set security lead, Richard H our set photographer, Mark D our extra and David L our extra. Kerry H, who is the accountant. And our newest supporter, Gary J, who is a CGFX technician. So thank you very much to all of the supporters of the podcast. We really appreciate you dipping into your purses and helping out with the podcast. Christmas, alone in my pad, I'm dreaming of morning and going real, real. 